0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. As you're doing that, if you'd open with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts this morning, we are going to be in Acts chapter 20. Um, Middle school class, by the way, is dismissed right now. Middle school class meets on the first, second, third, and fifth. So that's every Sunday except the fourth Sunday uh, downstairs there below the bleachers. So middle schoolers can make your way down there. But on Sunday mornings uh, here at church, we're currently studying through the book of Acts in our series titled Revolution. And each week what we do is we take a section of this book, and we're studying through it verse by verse as we work our way from the beginning to the end right through this book. Uh, And our goal with that is really to get the entire message, everything that God desires and intended to speak to us through this book. We want to get the whole thing. So please open with me to Acts chapter 20, and we're going to pick up there. And let's go ahead and pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you Do you love us so much that you pursue us, that you reach out to us. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word, your written word, that we might know you through it. And Lord, we pray that this morning, as we study your word, that you would speak to us, that you give us ears to hear, that our hearts would be good soil for the seed of your word to be planted and watered, Lord, that it might grow and bear much good fruit for your glory and for our good. So Lord, we ask that you would speak to us in this time and give us ears to hear, in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Acts, you know, book of Acts gives us the history of the earliest Christianity. And in doing so, it's our way of understanding what real, authentic Christianity is, what real, authentic Christianity looks like. As we see how these earliest Christians, many of whom walked with Jesus and knew Jesus personally, how they lived out their faith, how they took the baton as it was handed to them and ran with it. And here we see, it helps us to see what real, authentic Christianity is meant to be and look like. Here in Acts chapter 20, we're picking up the story in a place where we've been following Paul the Apostle on these, these missionary journeys that he's been on, and here we're Picking up with Paul the Apostle, he's on his third missionary journey. And after three years of being in Ephesus, that's what we talked about last week, Paul is now going to leave Ephesus. And he's going to go visit some of the churches that he started on his previous missionary journey before he ultimately heads to Jerusalem. In chapter 19... Uh, while Paul was in Ephesus, we read this in verses 21 and 22. It says, now, while, now Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia, It's the province of Asia Minor, for a while. So Paul is now going to visit the churches he started earlier on his previous missionary journey in cities like Philippi, Troas, uh, Thessalonica, Corinth, and then he's going to go to Jerusalem and he plans hopefully to go to Rome. So as he visits these churches, I guess you could think of it kind of as Paul's farewell tour, right? He knows that uh, after 10 years of, 10 or so years of ministry in this region, now he's going to say goodbye. He knows that he'll probably never return. This is the last time he'll ever see these people. These are people who he loves. These are people who he led to faith in Jesus. These are people who he taught and whom he pastored. And you can imagine that this would have been a very emotionally charged trip that he took as he sees these people and says goodbye to them and knows that this is the last time he'll see them. Uh, Paul is going to want to make sure on this journey that as he leaves these people, he leaves them knowing and understanding his heart for God and his passion for the gospel. So the title of today's message as as we look at this last part of Paul's third missionary journey is Something Worth Living For. And this is going to be part one of a two-part message. We're going to continue with the same theme of something worth living for next week as we get into uh, a speech that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders. But here, there are going to be two aspects of this story this week that I want to point out to you. First of all, we're going to talk about natural enemies. And secondly, we're going to talk about sleeping in church, which means that I'm going to have my eyes on you today, so watch out. All right, so first of all, natural enemies. Here's how chapter 20 begins. I'm going to read the first couple of verses so you can read along with me, starting in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and of the Asians, t- uh, yeah these are hard to pronounce. You know, this is a tough job to stand up here and pronounce these. Titius and Trophimus. These went on ahead, and they were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed, for seven days. we have got a map for you just so that you can kind of wrap your mind around where Paul's traveling. You know, he's going from Asia Minor, he's going around uh, the Aegean Sea by land, and then he's going into Greece and then coming back out of Greece. That, basically, that's what he does. But once again, we see here the pastoral heart of Paul. He's returning to these churches to see how they're doing, and he wants to encourage them to continue in their faith. But you know, here's what's most interesting in this section as as I'm reading this and studying it. Here's something, I think the most interesting part of this section is something that people usually just read right over without even realizing it's there, right? You just kind of read through it and you don't take notice. In verse 4, there's a list of names, that list that I stumbled through just a minute ago. There's a list of names of people who accompanied Paul on this trip. A group of people from the different churches that Paul was visiting. So we got Sopater the Berean, and from Thessalonica, Aristarchus and Secundus, then Gaius of Derby and uh, Tychius and Trophimus from the region of Ephesus. Now I know that most people don't get really pumped about reading these kinds of verses in the Bible, right? These lists of names of people you've never met, and you, can, you can't even pronounce them, and you're never probably going to meet them unless, you know, we, see it, we run into them in heaven, they're wearing a name tag or something. And you're like, oh, yeah, I read about you. Well, cool, you traveled with Paul. Congratulations, right? I mean, it's kind of like reading the phone book, right? It's just a list of names. We got these in the Old Testament, too. Bunch of names I can't pronounce, and great, right? And we just kind of skim through them whole bunch of names, whole bunch of names, get to something interesting. But here's the thing, you know, uh, it's really easy to just read over these genealogies and list the names and not give them much attention. But here's what happens when you sometimes, when you have to dig a little below the surface in order to find the nuggets of gold. And that is the case with this as well. See, there are two guys in this list, the two guys from Thessalonica. Check out these names, Aristarchus and Secundus. Let me explain what that means. These names say a lot about who these people were. Aristarchus, you might sound familiar, Aristarchus sounds like what? Aristocrat, right? That's a name that was commonly given to nobility. That's where we get our English word aristocracy, aristocrat. It comes from the same root word. And so this is a name that tells us that this man was nobility. He was a wealthy man. He was an aristocrat. So at least he's from that kind of family. This is a man who would have been from the ruling upper class in that society. These are the leading people of the culture, the people who had wealth, who had power, who had education, who had status, who had privilege. So here's Aristarchus, and who's his traveling companion? This other guy from Thessalonica, and his name is Secundus, which what does that sound like? It sounds like second, and that's literally what it means, number two, right? And that, that's kind of a weird name, right? And here's why, because that is a name that was commonly given to a slave in a Roman household. You see, because oftentimes they wouldn't call slaves by their actual given names. You know, slavery, even though in the Roman Empire, slavery was in a much milder form than what we generally think of, like here in the United States, nonetheless, it was a degrading institution, the idea of owning another person. And what people often do in order to justify or to deal with or to cope in their mind with degrading another human being is that they try to detach that person from their humanity. And one of the ways of doing that, so that when you think of that person when you deal with that person so you don't have to think of them as a human being it makes you not feel so bad about treating them in a degrading way one of the ways of doing that is by taking away their identity their humanity and their name is very much connected to uh, humanity and so with slaves in a roman household it was common not to call the slaves by their given names which they had received from their parents but instead they would just assign them a number and so this thing, uh, you, this is something which has been done historically as well. If you think about prisons and labor camps, it was done during the Holocaust. It, they take away people's names and just assign them a number because when you think of people uh, as a number, you know, it, it's some way you can kind of detach them from being a human being and it helps people to treat other people in a degrading way. All that to say, the Romans, uh, what they would often do is that a leading slave in a household would be named Primus, right, number one. And then the second one, Secundus. And then you can go down the line. They would just number these slaves. And so who is this guy who's traveling with Paul? Two men from Thessalonica, Aristarchus and Secundus, the nobleman and a slave. Now this is something that we know is actually very characteristic of Christianity in the earliest days. That the earliest Christians, they came from every social class. There were rich and there were poor, slave and free, educated and educated, and they came together and they formed a new people. This was something that was very surprising, it was astounding, even shocking, maybe even offensive to people in that society. It was something they couldn't wrap their heads around. It was something that shocked them because, you know, in our society, we tend to think we do believe that all people are created equal. That's in our constitution even. But that's an idea which we must understand came to us directly from the Bible. So almost all ancient societies and many non-Western societies today, they do not believe that all people are created equal. That's why they have caste systems. And so in this society at that time, it was absolutely scandalous. The idea that that there would be slaves and nobility gathering together in, in one corporate body called the church. You know, one of the shortest books in the Bible is a letter from Paul to a man named Philemon. I don't know if you've ever, you know, you going through your Bible, you ever read Philemon. So the book of, the letter to Philemon is, Paul's letter to Philemon is wedged right in between the books of Titus and Hebrews. And do you know what that letter is about? I'll, I'll tell you, it's a letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, who was a Christian and he was a wealthy man. He, as a wealthy man, like almost all wealthy people in that time, he had slaves and one of Philemon's slaves, a man named Onesimus, had escaped. He had had run away, and after he had escaped and run run off, he ends up meeting some Christians, and Onesimus becomes a Christian. And so, in a roundabout way, however it happened, Paul ends up meeting Onesimus, this escaped slave, at one of the churches that he visits on his travels, and he gets to talking with them, only to discover that Paul actually knows his former owner Philemon, right? Like you can imagine the conversation like, oh hey, oh great, you used to be a slave, but now you're free. Hey, praise the Lord, awesome, and now you become a Christian, so that means you're truly free indeed. Amazing. He says, so, so where are you from? Where were you a slave? And he says, Oh, you know, I was in such and such a town, in such and such a region. And Paul says, man, I've been there. In fact, I know people from that area. And he says, well, what was your uh, owner's name? He says, well, his name was Philemon. And Paul's like, no, no way. Small world, right? I actually know that guy. You're not going to believe this. And you know what? That guy's a Christian. He says, man, you know, now that you're a Christian, you and him, you need to be reconciled. You need to be reconciled. And so Paul writes this letter that he sends with Onesimus to take to Philemon And he says something glorious in that letter. He says this. He says, I'm sending Onesimus to you, and I want you to receive him, but not as a slave. I want you to receive him not as a slave. I want you to receive him as a brother. And he says, if there's anything that he owes you, a back pay or whatever it is, I want you to charge it to my account. Onesimus, he's no longer a slave. I want you to consider him now a brother. You see, this belief that the early Christians had, that all people stood on level ground before the cross of Jesus Christ, that was absolutely revolutionary. It was scandalous even. The idea that nobility would associate with slaves, that that a rich man could call a slave his brother and treat him as his equal. You realize that wasn't normal, that was revolutionary, that that there were slaves present at these Christian meetings just sitting there amongst everybody else, not relegated to a corner or something. And if you went to these meetings, you might have to sit next to a slave. But see, it it wasn't just slaves. These Christians had this belief that all people, and this is a belief which comes directly from the Bible and biblical theology that all people are created equal, that all people have intrinsic value because all of us were created by God and we're created in the image of God and therefore we bear the image of God. You know what that means for us practically? This is why Christians believe that a, the life of a person who has a disability, for example, is just as valuable as the life of a person who doesn't have a disability. We believe that the life of a poor person matters just as much as the life of a rich person. And the same goes for nationality and race and gender and down the line. I'll read you a quote from uh, D.A. Carson, Don Carson. Uh, He wrote this in his book, Love in Hard Places. And here's what he says about Christian community. He says this, What binds Christians together is not common education common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort, Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and they owe him a common allegiance. And this is his big statement here. He says, Christians are, therefore, a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. You know, when you think about relationships, the reason most relationships between people don't last is because they're built on having things in common and those things change over time. That's not to say that that's bad, that's just how it is. Whatever the basis for your relationship is, whatever that relationship is, whatever the basis is, when that changes, then the relationship changes or ends. So for example, if if the foundation of a relationship you have with someone else is that you have a shared interest or hobby, or that you work at the same company, or that you have kids who are involved in the same activities, then those relationships will inevitably change whenever the common bond changes or is no longer there. That's not to say that that's bad, that's just how it is. Relationships are only as strong as the foundation that they're built upon. And this is one of the things that happens with marriage, for example. Uh, when, the, when the thing that you, your relationship is based on, when that changes over time, and it inevitably will, then that relationship changes. And if that foundation isn't good, that's when people start wondering, after even many years of being married, why are we even doing this anymore? Like, why are we even together? There's no reason for us to be together. For example, if the basis of a relationship is physical attraction, Well, that fades with time, right? That's why I always tell my wife, I'm glad I married her when I was young because I was a lot better looking back then. You guys should check out some pictures. It's pretty impressive. So then what what happens, right, is that if the basis of your relationship is physical attraction, well, what happens when that changes? What happens when your spouse is no longer as attractive as he or she used to be? What happens when someone who's more attractive comes into your life? If the basis of your marriage is that you're raising children together, man, this happens all the time. Well, what happens when the kids get into middle school, high school, and then eventually move out, and then the house is empty, and then it's just the two of you sitting there, and you have nothing in common anymore, right? Because all you had in common was you're raising the kids. And then that's when you see that these marriages, people have been married for 25 years, and then all of a sudden they get divorced. Everybody's like, what was that? Well, the basis of their relationship changed. And what held them together is no longer there, right? If the basis of your marriage is financial stability and security, then what happens when you lose that? See, this is why as Christians, what we believe and what the Bible teaches is that the basis for Christian marriage should be spiritual friendship. I'm going to say that again. We believe as Christians that the basis of marriage should be spiritual friendship. I'm going to explain what I mean. You should be attracted to each other. That's good. You should have some common interests. That's all good. But see, the foundation at the core has to be spiritual friendship. In fact, spiritual friendship is what all the Christian community is based on. Spiritual friendship is the bond that we are seeing here at work between Aristarchus and Secundus, between the nobleman and the slave. Something that brings these two people together from opposite ends of the social spectrum that binds them together as brothers. Let me explain what I mean by that. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, he has a book called The Four Loves, and one of the four loves he talks about is friendship. And so here's what he says. He says this, If you were to depict a romantic relationship, what's the image that you would have? You would depict it as two people facing each other and looking intently at each other, right? That's uh, the posture of romantic relationships. They're looking at each other, and that's why um, people who are in love, you know, romantic love, they will always tell each other, I love you, oh, we love each other. They always talk about how much they love each other. But friendship is different. If you're going to depict friendship, you wouldn't depict it as two people looking at each other. You would depict it as two people side by side, shoulder to shoulder, looking at something else. Uh, They're looking at a third thing, looking at something else, not at each other. See, friendship is not about being absorbed with the other person. Friendship results when two people... Love the same thing, when the same thing motivates them and moves them. That's when friendship happens. Friendship happens when one person says to another, Do you see what I see? Do do you love what I love? And the other person says, Yes. And you say, I thought I was the only one. Now there's two of us, right? And then maybe you get some more too. And the two of you are bound together because you're looking at the same thing, you see the same thing, you love the same thing, you're motivated towards the same thing. See, friendship, C.S. Lewis says, is not about being absorbed with the other person. C.S. Lewis says, th- this is why, and he, he puts it quite harshly, so this is a quote. He says, this is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. It's, it's kind of sad. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I, I have. There are people who desperately want friends, but in irony of ironies, they cannot seem to make friends. Why? He, he tells us, at least his theory on why this is. He says, that's why these pathetic people who simply want friends can never seem to make any. Here's why. Because the very condition for having friends is that you must want something more than friends. You see, you can't just want friendship. In other words, this. If someone says to you, do you see the same truth that I see? And you say, well, I don't, I don't care about that at all. I just want you to like me, right? Then there's no basis for a friendship, I just want you to be my friend. Well, there's there's no foundation for a friendship there. There's nothing for the friendship to be about. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in the end he says, Those who have nothing can share nothing, and those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Now, do you realize what this means for Christianity? It means that what Christians share is a common experience, a common allegiance, a common identity, a common pursuit, a common mission. And that means that any two people, From any background, if they have this in common, they're kneeling before the same thing, shoulder to shoulder, looking forward at Jesus, pursuing him. That's, that's what binds them together. That's the spiritual friendship we're talking about. Now, when it comes to marriage, if this is the foundation of your marriage, more than kids, more than physical attraction, more than financial stability, if spiritual friendship is the foundation of your marriage, you and your spouse are standing side by side, looking to Jesus, pursuing Jesus, serving Jesus, then that is an incredibly strong foundation for a marriage because the gospel, unlike so many other factors in life, the gospel never changes. So your kids will move out. You'll both get older and less attractive. Uh, Your hobbies and interests will change with time. But if this is the foundation, that's incredibly solid. And that's why the Bible says that the only proper foundation for Christian marriage is this idea of spiritual friendship. And so that's what we seek to encourage people towards here, by the way, at Whitefields. But let me say this. This is certainly not just about marriage, It's it's about this, the gospel gives us something worth living for, something worth living for that is so powerful that it supersedes all cultural and social boundaries that generally tend to separate people. See, this is what brings Aristarchus and Secundus together from opposite ends of society. They have both found in the gospel something worth living for. Something that moves them, something that motivates them. They see in it a truth and a hope that is more powerful than the things which ever separated them. That's what makes Philemon and Onesimus become brothers. You see, did you know this, that Christianity is the most diverse religion culturally and racially in the world? Really. Every other major faith has 80% or more of its adherents on one or two continents. Christianity on the other hand, has roughly 20% of all its adherents across six continents, maybe five. I might be leaving Australia out. So I wrote it down here. So Christianity has 20% of its adherents in Africa, 20% of Christians are in South America, a little bit less than 20% of Christians are in Asia, and a little bit more than 20% are in Europe and North America each. No other religion can even come close to the cultural Diversity of Christianity. Most people, even in our society, in all societies, they have friends and relationships generally, mostly with people who are a lot like them. People who are of similar age, similar stage in life, similar uh, financial status, culture, etc. But one of the things that is so unique about the gospel and has been ever since the earliest days of Christianity is that it makes you friends with people you would never otherwise be friends with. Like Aristarchus and Secundus, the the nobleman and the slave, they're both living for the same thing, they're pursuing the same mission, and that brings them together, even though they're from opposite ends of the social spectrum. So Jesus Christ creates unity and even friendship across barriers that generally separate people. And the reason for that is because the gospel is the great equalizer. Do you see that? That the gospel message is this, that every one of us, every single one of us, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, the gospel brings all of us low. But then, of course, it only to raise us up again. But it brings us down to the same level. And it gives us no room for boasting or thinking that any of us is better than anyone else. We're all in the same boat. We all stand on the same level ground before the cross. And the only hope for all of us is the promise of the gospel that because Jesus took your place the innocent giving his life for the guilty in order to redeem you, that that is our only hope. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But the other reason why the gospel creates unity and even friendship across barriers that generally separate people is because the gospel gives us something worth living for, a mission to glorify God, to be his ambassadors, to be heralds of his love, to be heralds of redemption and salvation in this world. So I encourage you, pursue that and find other people who are pursuing that, and pursue it together. That's the basis for Christian community, and we would love to help you do that. We do love to help you do that here at Whitefields. That's one of our goals as a church, by the way, is to build and facilitate that kind of community. Aristarchus and Secundus, natural enemies who love each other for Christ's sake. They now have something to live for, something greater than any difference they might have ever had. So That brings us to our second thing that we see here in this section uh, is sleeping in church so please read with me from verse six again we sailed away from philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days we came to them at troas where we stayed for seven days and i just want to make this point i got a map here again for you and notice once again the author luke he changes from talking about they did this they did that now he again begins using the pronoun we and uh if you kind of look at the whole book and kind of put this all together here's what we see back in chapter 16 luke was traveling the author of this book was traveling with paul and he's talking in the first person you know we were doing this and then when they came to philippi then the language changed then they went on and the picture you get is that luke stayed in philippi after they planted the church there it seems that luke stayed in that city to be part of that fledgling congregation, perhaps even to be the leader of that congregation. And now as Paul passes through Philippi on his way down to Ephesus again, uh, Luke joins up with him, joins the crew again. So we see now what we're going to read next is a firsthand eyewitness account, something which the author, Luke, saw himself uh, with his own two eyes. So from verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talks still longer. And being overcome with sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Wow. See, that's what you get for sleeping in church. This is what it comes down to. Now, the first thing to notice here before I really harp on people who sleep in church, because really, I've been waiting to teach this section for a long time, all right? So before we get to that, let me just say this. Notice first it says that the Christians were gathered on the first day of the week. The first day of the week, of course, being Sunday. And remember, at this time, and for several hundred years of Christianity, up until the time of Constantine, actually before Constantine became a Christian, he made Sunday. A holiday throughout the Roman Empire in which people didn't work. But prior to that, so that's 300 something years, 300 years of Christianity. Sunday was a work day, but it was also the day when people gathered together as Christians to take the Lord's Supper, take the sacrament, and to hear the teaching of the Word and to pray together. So what it means is this, that historically, uh, what would happen is that Christians uh, would get up before they went to work on Sundays. We read about in church history, you know, you read ancient documents or even writings about Christians from people who aren't Christians, and they describe this. They said that the Christians would gather before sunrise. You imagine some of these people, slaves they got to be at work first thing in the morning so christians would gather before sunrise to have their service and they would celebrate on sunday which is you know you think about the first day of the week the day after the last day this is the day of new beginnings that's what it represents but it's also the day on which jesus rose from the dead and so they would gather together before sunrise to take communion to sing together and to hear teaching from the bible you see, interestingly, what we do here is not really all that different. If you were to get in a time machine and bring somebody from there, from that time to here, I don't think that they would be like, what are you guys doing? You know, it'd be, it'd be fairly similar. We're still, we still have the same key elements. And so then what they would do, they'd go off to work after their morning meeting, and then they would gather again in the evening, these early Christians. So early Christians, again, they didn't have Sunday off. And when I think about that, I think about how they would gather, man, I find I'm challenged by that level of commitment and that level of desire that these people are getting up at like three in the morning, right? They're getting up before sunrise, they're going to the place of gathering, they're getting together with other Christians, they're taking communion, they're listening to the word being taught, they're singing together, then they go off to work for eight, 10, 12 hours, and then after work, they come together again uh, in the evening. So that's what we're seeing here in Troas. We're seeing the evening meeting on the first day of the week, on Sunday. There was a gathering there of believers. They've been working all day long. And you can imagine that they must have been extremely worn out and extremely tired. And so here's Paul. And he's got a lot to say, right? Because this is his last time he's going to talk to these people ever. So he's just, he's just going for it. In my sermons, I'm really, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I have a little hobby horse about this. 38 minutes. Check it out. podcast. 38 minutes. Okay, Paul's sermon like like five six hours. Okay, right right. There were probably several intermissions, potty breaks, stuff like that. Everybody's going out. I mean, six hours of teaching. This is a uh, he's teaching past midnight, and of course in a room that's lit by lamps. Lamps eating up all the oxygen in the room. People are sitting by the windows so they can get some fresh air. And this guy Eutychus falls asleep and he falls out of the third story window and he says he's taken up dead. So I've been milling over this passage, like I said, for, for a really long time. I've really been looking forward to this one. And, uh, and what I think the main story of this is, don't fall asleep in church or you might die. But, uh, you know, I have had people fall asleep on me before in church. It's not my favorite thing, but I realize it happens. And what I take heart about is that I realize it happens to even the best of them, right? People fell asleep during Paul's preaching. I was reading, you know, I'm reading commentaries about this. I'm reading like John Calvin, John Wesley talking about people falling asleep in their teaching. So that makes me feel a little bit better. Uh, Even the best preachers, even the Apostle Paul had to deal with this. So here, check this out. John Calvin, here's how he dealt with it. You know, John Calvin in Geneva back in the day. He regularly taught for two hours on every Sunday morning, and it was kind of a running commentary is how he would teach through the Bible. And so the way that they dealt with people falling asleep is that they would, they'd have people, and it was their task, their assignment, to, they would have these long sticks, you know, like a meter long, three, three feet long, long pointy sticks, and their job was to walk around the church and just stab people who fell asleep, like, you know, because John Calvin didn't want people sleeping in church. John Wesley... You know, he would travel, teach in different places, oftentimes teaching in, in uh, even up to 10 different places on a Sunday. And he writes that one time he was uh, teaching a church and this guy fell asleep right in front of him. And so John Wesley, he started shouting, fire, fire, fire. And this guy was startled and was like, "Whoa! Where, where's the fire? And he says, fire of hell upon those who fall asleep in church. So we're not quite that harsh about sleeping in church here at Whitefields, um, but it does, you know, it has happened from time to time. And, uh, you know, a few people over the years, I remember there's this one guy who used to yawn really loudly, like just yawning, letting it go, you know. I mean, what, what are you going to do? He's tired, right? So anyway, he's yawning. Like I'd be making some big point, like in passion, I'm sweating. Somebody needs to hand me a hanky or something, right? And this guy's just like, yawn. You know, you know. But uh, it hasn't happened in a while. I will say this: I believe that the responsibility for staying awake in church, it's partly on the listener, but it's also part of the responsibility of. The, uh, the preacher, the pastor, he has some responsibility to teach well and to bring the word of God to bear upon people's hearts in a way that's relevant, in a way that's useful. And I believe that if you do that, people aren't going to fall asleep. You see, if people get more out of your sermon by taking a nap, well, then he, you're doing something wrong, right? And maybe you need to work on presenting the word of God in a way that does the word of God justice. Because here's the thing, if it's boring... It's not the Bible's fault. The Bible's not boring. You're boring, right? Like uh, if you make the Bible seem boring, that's on you. That's not on the Bible. And so I believe that it's the job of a, a preacher. I it's my job to present the word of God in a way that's faithful and, and faithful to God's intentions and in giving it to us and which shows how incredibly compelling it truly is. So one time here at church, I can't remember uh, if it was before service or after service, I went out to the foyer there and uh, I noticed that on the table where we have the coffee and tea, there were several boxes of sleepy time tea. (laughs) Now I was just like, how did this get here? Like whose idea was this? You know what we need more of at church? Sleepy time tea, right? You know the one with the bear, The, the logo is a bear falling asleep in his chair, that's what we need at church. We should go get some more boxes of that, right? Like, uh, you know, the kind of tea you drink when you need to take a nap, right? That is the last thing we need. That's the last thing anybody needs at church, and I'm convinced this is the work of the enemy. Like, this is is spiritual warfare. So we got rid of the sleepy time tea, and that really has uh, resolved a lot of the problems we were having. Furthermore, I think there's also... A limit to how much people can take in, right? There's a saying that says, the mind can absorb only what the seat can endure. And some pastors are guilty of that, right? They keep shoveling even after the cows are done eating. Not, not to call you cows or anything, but anyway, Paul here, we understand this is his last chance to speak to these people, and he has a lot to say, and I imagine if it was my last chance speaking to you, I'd probably uh, speak a little longer than usual. Nonetheless, after a long day's work, candles burning up all the oxygen in the room, well into the fourth hour of listening to Paul speak, it might have been the best sermon in the world, but it doesn't matter, despite his best efforts to stay awake, and God bless him for wanting to be there, even though he was tired, uh, Eutychus, he falls asleep and he topples down from the third story window. So sleeping in church isn't good. As we see in our story, it can be hazardous for your health, health. But let me tell you this, there's something which is much worse than sleeping in church. The Bible says that there are many people who essentially, they may be awake in church, but they sleepwalk through life They're sleepwalking through life. And let me tell you this, I'd rather that you get a nice refreshing nap during my sermon than that you sleepwalk through your life. Paul describes this in several places. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Awake, you who sleep, awake and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See, a metaphor of sleep, the idea of sleepwalking through life. Think about what that implies. When you're asleep, you're ignorant You're inactive. You're unaware of what is happening around you. You're alive in the sense that your heart is beating, your lungs are moving, but you're not really living. Everything about you is suppressed when you're asleep. And this is the metaphor for what it means to be spiritually dead. Your body's alive, but you're not really living. You're asleep to God, and you need to be woken up. You see, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, Jesus came to make dead people alive. He came to make those who sleep come awake. And if that's you, if that's me, we, we all, that was our base situation. We were spiritually dead. We were asleep, sleepwalking through life. But Jesus came to make us alive, to wake us up. See, there's something much worse than sleeping in church, and that is sleepwalking through life. That's much more dangerous than sleeping in church. And then Paul, he takes this metaphor a little further in his letter to the Thessalonians. And he says that there are some people who are Christians. In other words, they've been awakened from their sleepwalking through life. But yet, even though they're Christians and they should be awakened in Christ, in their hearts and in their minds, practically they're living as if they were asleep. He says this to the Thessalonians, For you are all children of light. Children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Charles Spurgeon once spoke on this topic, and he used three very powerful pictures to describe the tragedy of the sleeping Christian. The first Uh, example he used, he said it's like a city that's struck by the plague. People are dying, right? They're wheeling those wooden carts down the street and the coroner's saying, you know, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. And yet the whole time there's a doctor in the city who has the cure for the plague in his pocket, but where is he? He's asleep. People are dying and the doctor's asleep and he said, you know, what do you want to do? You want to go to that man's house, bang on the door, say, wake up. The second example he uses, he says, it's like a passenger ship that is in the midst of a storm and it's being dashed to pieces. It's about to be dashed to pieces against the rocks. And what's the captain of the ship doing? He's sleeping. He says a third example. He says, it's like a prisoner on death row about to be led off to execution. He's being led down the long corridor to his death. And all the while, There's a man who has a letter of pardon for this condemned man. The letter is in his pocket, but what is that man doing? He's in another room sleeping. What a tragedy that is. But that's the picture, he says, of a Christian who is sleepwalking through life. And so let me ask you today, is that you? Do you need to come awake? Have you been sleepwalking through life? Have you been the sleeping Christian? You've been alive technically, but you're just inactive, Or maybe there are some of you, you've never really come awake to God before, and today's the day that you need to do that. I would encourage you, don't brush that off. Perhaps that's the very reason you're here today. That's the very reason you're hearing this message today, because that's what God wants to speak to you about. But let's read on from verse 10. Paul went down and bent over him, bent over Eutychus, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. So Eutychus, he's seriously injured to the point of death, and then he's raised to life. This is a miracle. Luke saw it with his own eyes, he was there firsthand. Now I remember listening to one of my mentors talk about this story of Eutychus and how Eutychus died and, and as he died his soul would have been departing his body and going to heaven and then Paul comes and prays for him and then Eutychus comes back to life. And he says, yeah, well, that's comforting for those people, but what a bummer for Eutychus, right? I mean, here he is, seeing the light, right? Going towards the light, this close to being in heaven, and then he gets yanked back down to earth. Like, what a bummer. And this mentor of mine, he said, if I'm ever dying, don't you dare do that to me, right? I'm gonna be so mad at you if you do that. I cannot wait to be in heaven. If I'm on my way, don't you dare try and bring me back, right? But here's the thing. Paul and these other Christians, they knew without a doubt that if Eutychus dies, he's going to heaven, right? So why bother praying for him? Why restore him to life? Why not like the mentor of mine that I was talking about? Why not just let him go, right? Let him uh, enjoy and rejoice that he's in heaven. But here's why. Because there was still something worth living for. Don't let Eutychus die prematurely. He's still got something to live for. Paul talked about this same desire, the same, you know, kind of, Yeah, this desire in his heart, in his letter to the Philippians, this idea of being torn between two desires, on the one hand, wanting to go to heaven and leave this world behind, and yet the knowledge that God has something more for you here, a plan and a call for your life, that you get to live out for his glory. Here's what Paul says. He says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die, that's gain. Uh, And I don't know which one I should choose. If if I live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor to me. I don't know which I should choose. I'm hard-pressed. My desire is, on the one hand, to depart and be with Christ. That's far better than this. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. He says, finally, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He's saying, I'm torn. On the one hand, I want to just be done with this life and go heaven. Remember, Paul's writing his letter to the Philippians from jail. So you can imagine it was even more stark in his mind. I'd love to be done with all this stuff, man. I'd love to just be out of this place. But on the other hand, I know that God hasn't left me here for no reason. I know that God has a plan and a calling for my life, that I can live out for his glory and for the betterment of other people. That's something worth living for. And It's been said, find something worth dying for and then live for it. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us something worth living for. Because it says that God not only wants to save you, but God also wants to use your life for His purposes of bringing love and redemption and salvation to the world and into people's lives. Eutychus, we know you're going to go to heaven when you die, but don't die yet. You've got something to live for. God has a calling on your life, Eutychus, to use you for His purposes. Do you know this? That the same is true for you? God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has a calling on your life. He has ways that he wants to use you and use you to do his work. There's something worth living for. He died so that we might live for eternity and so that you might live, so that you might be part of his work of redemption in the places he has planted you. We're gonna continue next week looking at what I think is one of the best passages, not only in this entire book, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So don't miss that. But for today, I will close by saying this. There is nothing else more worthy of giving your whole life for than giving your life to him who gave his life for you. Don't sleepwalk through this life. God has a calling on your life. He's calling you to follow him, to serve him, to glorify him, to do his work in the world. If you've been asleep, it's time for you to wake up. It's time for you to arise and live full-heartedly for him. Maybe you've never come awake to God before, Or or maybe you have and you've fallen asleep. Let me tell you today, now is the time to awake. There's something worth living for. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for this message of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that the message of the gospel, Lord, is that we are more sinful, we're more broken than we even realize, than we can even know about ourselves. But Lord, thank you for this message of the gospel that in spite of that, Lord, you love us more than we could ever dare to dream, dare dare to imagine. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel brings us low only to raise us up and show us how loved we are and how cared cared for we are by you. Thank you, Lord, that you would give up everything to save us. Lord, may we live for you as you live for us. Lord, we ask that you would use our lives and you would help us, Lord, any of us who have been sleeping, Lord, to come awake today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution Series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.